The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book One, The Voyage South. Chapter Eleven, in which Astrea meets Gar and Lindy. It was noon when Astrea and Eva reached the ford. The river Teen had shrunk to a stream that wound its way through mixed forest. The road was now only a pair of red earth ruts on either side of a ragged green strip of grass, scarred by horses' hooves. At first the road kept to the valley bottom, running just far enough from the river to avoid spring flooding. Then it headed more directly south, crossing and recrossing the meandering stream on increasingly ramshackle bridges, until it ran so shallow that a bridge was no longer necessary. Where the road met the water, it was joined by another that was little more than a track, overgrown with ferns and almost blocked by fallen branches. At the water's edge, Estrella and Eva sat to take off their shoes before wading to the other side. They had travelled for most of the night, their way lit by a late-rising moon. Somewhere in their journey they had passed through tiredness into an unreal state in which they walked side by side, neither of them wanting to be first to stop. Sitting under the overhanging trees, they took their time to soothe their feet in the smoothly flowing water. There seemed no good reason to do anything more than sit, perhaps lie down and sleep, drugged by tiredness and the silken sounds of water. As they dawdled in the green shade, a creaking and rumbling came down the disused track from the east. They looked up, at the sounds of a horse's hooves, and the squeaks and rattles of a wagon bumping over stones and stumps. Two voices alternately gave brief warnings and assurances. The branches swayed aside, and a wagon lurched down towards the sun-dappled waters of the ford. Tired as he was, Astraea stared at the vehicle in delight. Behind a piebald horse was a wagon on which every available space had been painted and ornamented. The body was a tall, boxy affair, painted bright yellow. It was roofed and sided with canvas spread on hoops, and painted to look as if it had windows, in each of which there was a scene so cunningly detailed that it seemed a glimpse into a different world. The wagon lurched to a stop beside them, letting Astrea clearly see the two mock windows on the side nearest him. He saw a horse that galloped away and a lone figure who stared out at the sea. Below, the wagon's yellow sides were decorated with fantastically convoluted faces of people and animals, some grim, some friendly, some with mysterious and haunting looks. Even the spokes of the wheels, now muddied and dirty, were etched with curlicues and scrolls, and from each hub a whirling face stared either down at the ground or up at the paintings. The driver of this wonder was a man with a closely trimmed white beard and a fringe of equally white hair. The shirt he wore had once been brown, but had been splashed and wiped with all shades of coloured paint. As he bent forward to loop the horse's reins on the rail in front of him, Astrea saw that the top of his head was perfectly bare and darkly sun-browned. A young woman, taller and more substantial than Eva, strode around to the horse's head. She had twisted her shoulder-length hair into a loose knot at the back of her head, but twigs and branches had pulled some of it loose. 
Her russet-coloured skirts were kilted to mid-thigh, and the sleeves of a loose shirt were rolled above her elbows. In her hands was a stout staff, tall enough to reach her shoulder, muddied at one end from levering the wagon over obstacles. Astraea stared, because it seemed to him that both the man and the woman had some special meaning to him. Against reason he had the overwhelming feeling that this accidental meeting was destined to reveal something about them and him. The man, woman, and horse were working efficiently. All three were loose-jointed with tiredness and intent on their tasks, which allowed him to watch them unobserved. However, when Eva stood to greet them, their reactions were quick and purposeful. All three stopped dead in the trail. The horse's head jerked up, the man's right hand swept downwards and reappeared holding a short cudgel, and the young woman grasped her staff around its point of balance, transforming it from tool to weapon. Their determination was obvious, but as Estrella looked into their faces, their eyes were calm. The man evaluated him, turning his head slightly so that first one and then the other of his grey eyes met Estrella's. He felt himself respond to the man's stare as if commanded. He returned the look until the man frowned and turned his attention back to Eva, letting Estrella observe the young woman. His first thought was how blue her widely spaced eyes were and how steadily they held his gaze. Then he noticed that the hair that framed her face and fell almost to her shoulders was a distinctive shade of honey-blonde, with a couple of leaves caught in it. He felt an unexpected need to remember her exactly as she stood before him. He studied her carefully, memorizing a slightly upturned nose and her calm, alert expression that contradicted the belligerent way she held her staff. "'We're friendly,' said Eva, extending her hands in a gesture of peace, somewhat confused by the fact that she still held her shoes. "'Are there any more of you?' asked the man, and then answered his own question. "'Of course. If you're up to no good, you wouldn't say.' He sighed, put his cudgel on the seat beside him, and shrugged one shoulder to his companion, who grounded one end of her staff. "'If there are any more of them, we've no position to defend anyway,' he said wearily. "'Besides, I've never seen footpads with shoes in their hands.' "'We're travelling to the castle,' said Eva. "'Scholars, are you?' "'We hope to be,' said Estrella. "'Did you do the drawings on your wagon?' "'So the young man has a voice, after all, though with an accent I don't recognize. "'We're from Teenmouth,' said Eva. "'You are, but your inquisitive companion, no.' "'Can we help you cross the ford?' asked Estrella. "'A friendly offer, wherever you're from. We accept.' He clicked his tongue at the horse, and the wagon started forward, brushed by the branches of a willow that hung over the water. As it lumbered past them, Eva and Astrea put their shoes, his pack, and her basket beside the driver, and walked behind the rear wheels, feeling their way through the water in their bare feet. In two steps the water reached Astrea's knees. The bottom was a rock ledge, slick with mud, and although the water got no deeper, the horse started to lose its footing. Estrella pushed and heaved at his side of the wagon, curling trails of mud darkening the water beside him. Ahead he could see the young woman leading the horse, one hand on its bridle. The wagon slowed and slid sideways. Rattling and banging noises came from within as it tilted towards Estrella, threatening to leave the ledge and fall into the pool downstream. 
Eva's shoes slid into the water. Estrella scooped them up, tossed them into the wagon, and then braced his back against the tailgate and shoved as hard as he could. He succeeded only in driving his feet into the mud. "'All together, now!' said the driver. Horse and helpers all pushed or pulled at the same moment. The wagon lurched, Estrella lost his footing and fell. Beside him, Eva staggered, splashing herself from head to foot. Ahead of them, the young woman fared little better as the horse thrashed heavily through the shallows onto dry land, its hoofs spraying water and mud. They were successful, but at the price of a wetting. Estrella trudged out of the stream, his clothes clinging to him. Eva, only slightly less wet, wrung out her dress as best she could, while the young woman leant on her staff and stared at the stream that had filled her boots and soaked her skirt. Estrella saw her lips move, and knew that she was cursing silently. His own lips twitched in sympathy. She saw him observing her, and one of her eyebrows rose. He quickly looked away. "'Well, it seems hardly fair for me to be the only dry one,' said the driver. "'But if you can all manage a hundred or so paces, there's a good place to build a fire and dry out.' His face softened into a smile, which he tried to suppress. Astrea looked at the dripping, disconsolate figures, saw the driver's point of view, and chuckled. Eva stopped trying to shake water from her sodden clothes and looked at him with irritation. "'You have weed in your hair,' she said brusquely. "'You've a face full of freckles,' returned Astrea cheerfully. Eva wiped her face, producing a brown smudge. Ankle-deep in the stream, Estrella laughed, as he had not done since leaving the village. Still laughing, he waved his hands in an effort to convey that he found the entire situation funny, but Eva turned angrily away from him, trying unsuccessfully to wipe her face clean. Estrella strove with his mirth, realizing that Eva thought he was laughing at her, but a deep chuckle from the driver set him off again. He saw the blonde woman's lips curl upwards. At that moment, the horse turned its head to look at the humans, then snorted and shook, spattering them all with mud, including the driver. Once he had wiped his face on his sleeve and run his fingers through his circlet of white hair, his weathered face was as blotched as his paint-spattered shirt. "'I'm Gar, and this is Lindy,' he said cheerfully. "'I'm Eva.' "'Astrea. Sure you are.' Astrea frowned at the strangely worded response and decided that it was a question. "'Of course I am,' he replied. Gar's eyebrows almost came together in a deeply notched scowl. For a moment he stared at Astrea with the same calculating intensity that had made him almost forbidding at their first meeting. Then his face softened into a smile so pleasant that Astrea almost forgot what had just happened. Gar nodded and repeated both names. Expecting the usual abbreviation, Estrella was surprised when Gar pronounced his whole name easily, albeit slightly accented, as if the name were longer. Lindy nodded at each of them, her expression polite but neutral. "'Well, then,' said Gar, "'any wetter, and you'd look as if you'd been lost at sea.' He paused, glanced at Estrella, expecting a reply, but when none came, he shrugged and flicked the reins on the horse's back. Estrella briefly wondered whether he had heard a special emphasis on the last three words. They followed the creaking wagon along the tree-lined track, leaving a trail of wet footprints behind them. The sky was cloudless, but big-leaved maples and spreading oaks shadowed them in green gloom 
until Gar led them to a clearing. Only a few sun-warmed strides more, and they stood beside a ring of fire-blackened stones. When Gar slid from the driver's seat and reached into the back of the wagon for a handful of dry kindling, Estrella noticed that his breeches were as painty as his shirt. Bold stripes of different colors crisscrossed his thighs where he had wiped paint brushes or fingers. The paint marks camouflaged him, making it difficult to guess at the man within the paint-daubed baggy clothes. Judging from the nimble way Gar moved, Estrella guessed at a strength belied by his fringe of white hair. When he helped unharness the horse, it became clear that they were approximately the same height, and though Gar was by no means thin, he was certainly fit. From inside the painted wagon, Gar and Lindy produced food and drink, to which Eva contributed what remained in her basket. Soon wet clothes festooned the upturned wagon shafts and flapped in a light wind. Estrella gratefully accepted a clean, paint-daubed shirt and cut-off breeks from Gar, while the yellow shirt Judith had given him dried. Eva refused Lindy's offer of both shirt and skirt, and instead wrapped herself in a blanket. Lindy watched with a faintly quizzical expression as Eva attempted to keep it around herself while they knelt or sat around a cloth spread for their meal. Their shared experiences at the ford encouraged explanations and histories, spurred by Gar's smiles and grey-eyed attention. He encouraged them to speak by his silences and nods, rather than with questions, and seemed to understand more than the mere words they spoke. Lindy, having unobtrusively prepared the food, sat quietly a little apart, her blue eyes watchful, her expression pleasant but neutral. Estrella found himself speaking much more freely than he had intended, and after the meal was over he wondered whether he had said too much to complete strangers no matter how generous they were with their food. After giving a brief account of sailing from the village to Teenmouth, he fell silent, determined not to speak of Yan's or Roaring Jack's treachery. Gar refrained from asking Estrella what happened next, but his encouraging looks soon had Eva explaining that her father would not accept that a girl would want to learn to be a healer. Estrella noticed Lindy's eyebrows rise slightly as if irritated by what she heard. Gar continued to nod attentively, as Eva described Estrella's arrival, how he was attacked, and then abandoned by the Molly's crew, and then chosen as scholar. Estrella did not correct or embellish her account with how or why he had been betrayed and forsaken, and neither Gar nor Lindy questioned the gaps in their story. Estrella grew embarrassed as Eva continued to talk enthusiastically about his reading and writing skills, so to stem her flow of superlatives, he stood up from the log on which he had been sitting and pulled his shirt from the wagon shafts. He shook off a few remaining specks of dried mud, shrugged off Gar's paint-speckled garment, and put his own back on. As he tucked it into his waist, he was aware of Gar's gaze sharpening from a casual look to intent curiosity. Estrella's hand felt for the silver bracelet on his left arm and the leather pouch of money around his neck. When he looked at Gar again, the man's face had undergone a subtle change, and there was something in his tone of voice that Estrella could not fathom. Estrella? Eva? Now it's our turn, said Gar. At least it's mine, because Lindy isn't as talkative as I am. I am a painter. I travel. I visit places in search of work— never to return, 
or at least that's the way it's worked out so far. Lindy joined me many months and a handful of villagers ago. We, too, are on our way to the castle, where I am to paint, ornament, embellish, and otherwise beautify the walls of their hall. I'll be there for some time. The hall's as big as this clearing. Estrella looked at Gar incredulously. A single building into which Alanna's cottage would fit three or four times? The thought of producing a drawing on the wall of such a place struck Estrella as a task requiring years, if not a lifetime. Gar gave him a knowing look, and answered his unspoken question. "'Once you've decided what to paint, getting it onto the wall's only a minor problem,' he said. "'But the materials,' said Estrella, "'you're going to need so much charcoal and paint, and I have the strange conviction that you can draw as well as read and write,' said Gar slowly. "'Well, come and take a look.' He stood up and rolled back the flaps at the rear of the wagon. Inside, Estrella saw a travelling painter's workshop. Rolls of canvas swung from the wooden hoops that held up the roof. Stretched canvases on frames were tucked into racks. Tools and brushes were clipped to a paint-daubed folding table or dangled from strings above it, and under the two benches that ran along either side of the wagon were pots, pails, canisters, jugs, beakers, and bottles of paint and pigment, each patched with a splash of colour to mark its contents. For the first time in his life, Estrella looked at another man's possessions with sheer envy. To be able to work with such a range of shades and colours made Estrella remember with disgust his own attempts to use the natural dyes that the women in the village cooked up to tint their wool. Unlike the soft tones suitable only for cloth, Gar's pigments offered shades that could be vivid or subtle, strong or muted. At Gar's invitation, Estrella pored over the sketches and finished paintings that were ready for sale. Most were landscapes of the kind that looked familiar, until he saw that they were all cunningly vague and generalized variations on a handful of themes, such as a river in morning mist, a single tree at sunset, a small boat sailing across a bay. At first the older man was cautious, lest Estrella's interest was one with so many of the young men and women who were attracted by his brightly painted wagon, but who then dismissed his work as useless, or suspected that it was magically dangerous. However, he soon saw that Estrella's appreciation was not only for the finished product, but also for the skills that went into the paintings and the drawings. "'These are what I do for me,' said Gar eventually, as he climbed into the back of the wagon to reach a leather case from which he pulled several thin plain boards. They were all portraits, sketched in charcoal and highlighted with paint. They captured a person, and most spoke of the mind behind the features, as if the artist had recorded them to make a collection of the characters he had met. Here was a mean-spirited man with an avaricious twist to his mouth. There was a woman whose gossip was spiteful. And there was a girl who, though pretty, was not as beautiful as she wanted the world to believe. Estrella turned through the canvases, admiring the artist's skill and technique, wondering how the landscapes were so sweetly appealing and the portraits so cunningly observant. Gar leaned out of the wagon with another handful of drawings. As Estrella handed the others back, his shirt-sleeve slid, and the silver bracelet gleamed through the strands of woven string. Gar's eyes locked onto it. "'Where did you get that?' he asked softly. 
The bracelet? My father. He's dead. Because his attention was on the paintings, Estrella did not notice Gar's intense scrutiny. He was absorbed by meticulous drawings of animals, each in its natural setting. Although the detail was finely executed, it was not the mere exactness that fascinated him. Life and movement were caught in the still colors and lines, as if at any moment each animal might disappear from the board on which it was painted. Estrella held up a small drawing of a squirrel, and stared at it, still oblivious that his blunt response had not satisfied Gar's curiosity. "'You like it?' Gar asked. "'It's not just any squirrel,' said Estrella slowly. "'You're right. I called him Chaffers. He visited me almost every day and tried to steal my lunch for nearly a month. Since he didn't care to travel on with me, the best I could do for the little fellow was to paint his picture.' Estrella turned through more drawings, stopping at an unfinished sketch of a woman with a heart-shaped face. There was something puzzling about how Gar had drawn her. Without thinking what he was doing, Estrella held the drawing above him, and the answer became clear. The woman's dark hair hung down from her face, shadowing her cheek but revealing intensely focused eyes. Whoever she was, Gar had drawn her from below, as she looked down at him. He was about to ask about the unusual point of view when Gar took the sketch from him and slid it into the back of the satchel. Unfinished. I should have gone back, he said as if speaking to himself. Then he continued in his usual confident tone. Let that be a lesson to you, young lad. Never interrupt your work, whatever she says. Eva frowned disapprovingly at his last three words, as she walked over from the fireside to find out what they were talking about, her blanket still draped a trifle uncertainly around her. Estrella looked up only when one arm, bare to the shoulder and a little below, reached to take the next drawing he was about to examine. Standing a couple of paces away, Gar's eyes twinkled as he watched Estrella's concentration transfer to the round softness just below the top of Eva's blanket. "'Estrella can draw, too,' said Eva, hitching the blanket higher, as well as read and write. Gar's bushy eyebrows rose slightly. "'Show him, Estrella, go on, draw something for him, the way you said you did for your skipper.' "'I—I I don't have bark, charcoal, ink,' Estrella said with a shrug. Gar considered the reply. There'd been no self-depreciation in Estrella's tone. He reached into the wagon and brought out a sketching satchel, equipped with charcoal, wafer-thin boards, and inks. "'Use what you need,' he said. "'These are very fine,' said Estrella, as he drew out a board and a wooden box of charcoal. "'Are you sure?' Gar nodded. "'What would you have me draw?' asked Estrella. Gar pursed his lips again. Perhaps he'd been wrong, and he would have to face his own and the lad's embarrassment, or worse— a mess of scrawled lines that appealed only to the one who had made them. Gar had met young people who had no idea how badly they drew, but he could recall none that had shown Estrella's singleness of purpose. "'Draw her,' said Gar, waving an arm at Eva. Estrella looked about him, then took Eva's hand and led her to the front of the cart. "'Can you stay still, if you're comfortable?' he asked. Eva nodded, blushed, and then held his eyes as she nodded again. She half-leaned, half-sat on the wagon's shafts, the blanket across one arm, the other hand catching its edge from slipping off her shoulders. Estrella took two steps back, 
knelt in the grass, and stared at her fixedly for several long minutes. The redness of her cheeks eventually subsided. She stayed very still. As the moments passed, Estrella's concentration only grew more intense, so much so that even when the wind flicked a damp curl of black hair across his forehead, his expression did not change. Estrella continued to look at Eva, who eventually frowned, as if she thought he was embarrassing her. Lindy watched from a distance, her head slightly tilted, and raised one eyebrow at Gar, who took a step forward to bring the awkward charade to an end. But before he could speak or move more than a step, Estrella began to scrape the charcoal in long strokes across wood, making a smooth, hissing sound. Quick tapping and scratching noises followed. Gar stood still, nodding slightly. There was control and sureness in the first bold strokes of the charcoal, and the rhythm had not been broken as Estrella worked on the detail. He looked up only occasionally. Lindy walked quietly to where she could see over Estrella's shoulder. She caught Gar's curious glance and again raised one eyebrow at him, this time in wonderment. Eva sat as if carved in stone, the centre of attention. A biting fly found her shoulder, and the blanket slid far lower than her mother would have ever let her wear a blouse. Eventually her teen-mouth training was stronger than her will to remain still. The wind caught the blanket and tugged it low enough that she broke out of her pose in a scramble to preserve modesty. "'I'm sorry, Estrella. I'll try to go back into the same position.' Estrella looked up blankly at her confusion. "'It's all right,' he said. "'You can move if you want to.' He worked on for several minutes, then stopped and regarded what he had done with his head on one side. Eva went impatiently to him and looked at what he had drawn. For a moment— she stood, agape. Estrella had drawn a young woman, not the little girl who had looked back at her from her mother's battered metal mirror. When he looked up at her, he saw her standing more confidently, holding her head proudly. Gar smiled at Eva's unconscious preening. His own examination of the drawing was much more professional. He approved the likeness Estrella had caught, but he seemed more impressed by the vigour of the sketch and he looked with even greater approval at the sureness and economy of the lines. He narrowed his eyes as if seeking to find fault as he might in his own work. Then he suddenly shrugged and smiled at Estrella's apprehensive expression. "'Who taught you?' asked Gar. Estrella shook his head. "'It's like feeling the shapes with my eyes. I look, and then I look at the blank sheet, and I see the picture. Then I—' shape it with the charcoal, except that things get a bit changed. He paused. Does that mean I'm lying? Gar chuckled and ran his fingers through his circle of white hair, fluffing out the tufts over his ears. Well, if you didn't change things, you wouldn't be making a picture. Look, here, where you shadowed under her arm to bring it a little higher than it was. That's good, because it accentuates her breasts. And here— where you've highlighted, to tilt up her chin a bit, you've caught that, um, delicate look she has when she glances up at you. But here your line got a bit lost, and you had to fudge it with a second stroke. Up here you've got good balance between— Eva stepped back during the flow of commentary to which Estrella listened attentively. She hunched her shoulders under the blanket, drew it around herself tightly, and frowned at Gar. 
spoiling my picture with words, she muttered. He's saying I'm not really the way Strayer drew me. Estrella recognized the voice of someone speaking partly to herself, partly to be heard and apologized to. As he searched for suitable words, Lindy resolved his problem. "'They'll talk about you now as if you were a tree,' said Lindy. "'They're alike. They look silently. But once they've drawn something, they have to talk.' Eva stared at Lindy, whose face was as inscrutable as her voice had been. "'And what do you do for Gar?' Eva asked lifting her chin for emphasis. "'I take turns driving the wagon, cooking, looking after the horse. Sometimes I mix paints, and from time to time I help him stay out of trouble.' Eva sniffed and turned away after Lindy's matter-of-fact comments. Estrella was suddenly fearful that the chance meeting that held so much promise might be about to end. "'Lindy,' said Gar suddenly, "'would you set about pitching camp here for the night?' I've got a lot of talking to do with this young man. As Lindy nodded and set to work unpacking the wagon, Eva flounced away from all three of them. She pulled her still damp clothes from where she had spread them and went behind the bushes to change. How did you? Where did you? Estrella and Gar spoke at the same moment, stopped and laughed. Estrella answered Gar's question before it was completed. Roaring Jack was the only person, besides my mother, of course, who thought there was any use in my markings, as he called them. He took me south to draw where we'd been, so that we could find our way back. He had you sketch his landfalls? Yes, and because we stayed close in sight of land, I made a whole lot of sketches. You could say that I made one very long sketch of our way south. Estrella was dimly aware that Eva was listening to their conversation as if about to demand, What about me? He noticed that she had started to comb out her hair and replant it into pigtails, casting glances at the two men, and then at Lindy, who was preparing a stew. Estrella's concentration returned to Gar when she strolled off along the road, kicking her shoes into the dust. He wondered briefly if he should say or do something about her, but then she returned almost immediately, went up to Lindy, and stood, her hands on her hips. "'If you want help, just tell me what to do.' he heard Eva say. Lindy's face softened into a surprisingly gentle smile. Memories? she asked softly. Estrella saw Eva put her head on one side, as if looking for signs that she was being patronized. I don't want to go home, she said, but at the same time I wish—I wish— Eva could not finish her thought. You wish life was a little more predictable, completed Lindy. Eva's mouth fell open. She nodded. How did you know? I knew I had to leave my home, but that didn't make it any easier, said Lindy. At first I was lonely a lot of the time. You were by yourself? asked Eva incredulously. You can't be much older than I am. Lindy nodded as she slid chopped onions off a cutting board into a pot. I'd trained for it, of course, she said. You're learning it all at once. "'For certain you've been lucky.' "'Lucky?' asked Eva. "'You had Estrella, and then you found us. "'You could have been robbed, raped, and murdered.' Eva swallowed and then deliberately refused to be impressed. "'While you, of course, wouldn't have been.' "'That's right,' said Lindy calmly. "'You don't need a man to look after you,' said Eva sarcastically. "'That's right,' 
said Lindy, as if stating the simple fact. Estrella watched as Eva shook her head again. He saw that she was unable to reconcile Lindy's perceptive awareness of her problem, and her emotionless statements about dangers Estrella knew terrified Eva. He was struck by the differences between them that went so much further than the fact that one was diminutive and brown-haired and the other full-figured and blonde. He reflected on the way Lindy continued with what she was doing, answering questions simply and directly, while Eva reacted to what she said as if she needed a more emotional response. "'What Lamstew needs is herbs,' he heard Lindy say. "'My supply has run out.' Mother always said you can't make stew without herbs. He wondered how Eva would respond, fearing that she might reject Lindy's overture of companionship. I smelled mint at the ford, said Eva. I'll go get some. And so I stayed ashore and turned my hand to painting, which was something I'd always wanted to do. Gar's words snapped Estrella's attention back from the two women. Rather than confess that he'd not been listening, Estrella hazarded a request. W "'Would you show me some more of your drawings and paintings?' "'Thought should never ask,' said Gar cheerfully. "'Come into my perambulating painter's store of wonders.' Estrella and Gar went back to his cart, where their conversation continued. While they talked, Estrella was strangely conscious of Lindy. When she came over to the cart for a crock of sourdough starter— he watched the way she moved, and his gaze lingered when she returned to the fireside to start the process of making bannock. He was also dimly aware of Eva, who did not even glance in his direction as she first sat on, then leaned against a log that someone had placed near the fire, and combed her hair once more. When Estrella looked again after Gar had completed a commentary on a couple of his sketches and was reaching for a third to demonstrate the point of his monologue, tiredness had overtaken Eva, and she had slid sideways onto the ground. As the afternoon drew on, and Gar talked about painting after painting and sketch after sketch, Estrella listened with part of his attention still on Lindy as she silently fed the fire and prepared their meal. Eventually, the shadows slanted across the little clearing, and Estrella saw her take up her pot of stew and dig a second lidded pot that was acting as an oven from under the red coals. When the lid clinked open, the smell of fresh bannock joined the aroma of stew. "'Time to eat,' Lindy called. Gar was still talking as he and Estrella walked towards the fire that was now bright in the shadows at the close of sunset. "'Be grateful for the times when you're ignored,' Gar was saying as they took their places. "'I've left two villages in the past year where the good people were convinced I was a witch, and they were anxious to do their souls good by dismembering my mangy carcass. The second time they would have succeeded if Lindy hadn't appeared just in time and cracked a couple of heads with her staff. Of course, because she's a woman, they were convinced we were in league with the powers of darkness, and they went back to their houses in search of firebrands, pitchforks, and, of course, spiritual uplift. While they were seeking supernatural aid, we got Nora, the queen of all horses, hitched up to the shafts, and we stole away by midnight. The horse, hearing her name, whinnied softly and went back to champing at the grass. "'They thought you were a witch?' asked Eva incredulously. Witches are—' She stopped. 
glancing back and forth between Gar and Lindy. Well, they recognized their faces in a few sketches I had done, and so they decided I must have stolen something from them. Since they hadn't felt anything being cut away, they decided I must have relieved them of their souls. <laughs> Gar chuckled. It didn't do any good for me to tell them that I wouldn't know a soul if it came up to me and bit me in the rump. The more I said, the more testy they became. Testy, said Lindy looking up from the stew-pot she was unloading into earthenware plates. Irrational! Unreasonable! She pronounced the last word as the ultimate condemnation. Lindy has this charming belief in reason, said Gar. She also has a disconcerting willingness to resort to violence when she thinks that reason alone will not prevail. Force can be a reasonable response if used for self-protection or to avert imminent violence said Lindy calmly. Estrella and Eva stared at her. "'There she goes again,' said Gar. Lindy was an enigma to Estrella. Bent over the stew-pot, her hair curtaining her face, there was something about her that made Estrella pause and watch her with quiet delight. In some ways she could be taken for the kind of girl whom people of the village would say, "'She'll make some man a good wife.' But when she spoke about the use of force— her pronouncement did not sound like a girl repeating a lesson, but more like one of the older women, or even a skipper. When she stood up, holding the heavy iron stew-pot in one hand, Estrella saw that she was as strong as he. The image of her stance at the ford came to his mind, her staff at the ready, her skirts kilted above her knees, her blue-eyed gaze steady. She had been both essentially feminine and surprisingly dangerous. He warmed to Lindy's capability— just as Eva unconsciously shrank away. "'I've been trying to teach Lindy how to disappear in a crowd,' said Gar, "'but I haven't got very far. "'Smile vaguely, Lindy. "'Slouch!' Lindy's face moved obediently. She raised the corners of her mouth, but achieved only a travesty of a smile. The muscles responded, but the result was disturbingly false. She rounded her shoulders and let her hands hang, but only managed to look like a bad imitation of an idiot. Gar shook his head sadly. Lindy's face relaxed, a fleeting smile curling the corners of her mouth before her calm expression returned. She stood with the competent poise Estrella remembered from their first meeting, and he stared at her, suddenly conscious of the difference between her level gaze and Eva's ingratiating upward glances. "'It's no good,' said Gar. Lindy can't see the funny side. He spoke pleasantly, and Lindy accepted his words without rancor, but Estrella had seen Lindy's fleeting, subtle smile, and he was sure that she both appreciated Gar's wordplay and also had a droll humor of her own. I wouldn't be so sure, said Estrella. Lindy turned to him slowly. He's always sure. He's even sure of opposites. He can tell one of his customers that he's the greatest painter in the universe, and a day later he's crumpling up good paper and canvas and saying, "'It's no good. I can't catch it. I can't paint.' She mimicked Gar's voice and intonation cleverly. When both Estrella and Eva chuckled, Gar stared at her, his eyebrows raised. Lindy's usual dispassionate look softened, the corners of her mouth drew back, and her teeth gleamed between lips that were usually firmly held together. "'Well, I'll be pounded flat and rolled into a pie-crust,' said Gar. "'All this time you've hidden your talent for mimicry from me.' 
and now you have an audience. You use it to pour scorn and derision on my innocent head. I am doubly hurt and dismayed. He roared with laughter, stopped, fluffed his hair over his ears, and laughed again. All this time I thought she had no sense of humour. Lindy's smile flickered again, and Estrella silently clapped his hands. "'My trouble is that I'm never there at the right time,' said Gar, as he ladled out the stew. "'Why, once a man wanted me to paint his cow, and I said I would, and then he told me she'd been dead for two years. But he'd tell me all about her. Sure was difficult to catch a likeness. Now, if I'd been there to see the cow, if I'd been there to see Lindy's smile, except this time I was there, but I missed it.' Estrella stared at him thoughtfully. He guessed that there was bitterness to Gar's comedy, as if behind his words were other, more serious events that he regretted. Noticing his expression, Gar launched into a series of entertaining reminiscences, each more improbable than the last, each making himself the butt of the joke. All through the meal and on into the evening, Gar entertained an entranced audience— as the light faded from the sky and firelight warmed their faces, Gar talked on. Sometimes he pulled out a painting to illustrate where he had been and what he had seen. Eventually, as eyelids started to droop and stares into the fire grew longer and longer, Gar told his last tale. Leaving the three people sitting in that indolent state that comes when it is too much effort to get up and go to bed, he went to the wagon and pulled out hay-filled pallets which by day protected his belongings from the jolting of the wagon, and at night could be used as mattresses. Soon all four were lying under blankets around the fire. Estrella, said Lindy in the darkness, thank you for helping me show Gar that I do find some things funny. Estrella was taken by surprise and could think of no answer. He turned on one elbow and looked at Lindy across the dying fire. Her light hair gleamed softly in the flickering light. My mother has a saying, you had it in you all along. It only needed a little help to find the way to let it out. Gar's white fringe of hair appeared out of the shadows as he sat up to contribute to the exchange. That's what the first girl I ever bedded told me, except she didn't put it quite so nicely. His chuckle mingled with the crackle of the fire. Estrella heard a little snort from Eva that he took to be of disapproval, but when he looked in her direction— she had turned her back and was tightly curled up under her blanket. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit estreatrilogy.com for more about Estrella's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0.